Hello, friends. We're back of episode 136 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. Can you believe we're in September already? Well, I hope all of you in the land of the U.S. here had a relaxing Labor Day weekend. And for those around the world, having a great time as well. But thank you for tuning in from wherever you are. And this is the weekly podcast where we sh- showcase the latest highlights and additional finds that we see every single week and in this particular week on the R Weekly website itself. My name is Eric Nance and I'm glad you joined us today and I'm joined by my awesome co-host who's also burning the midnight oil quite a bit regularly now, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today? I would say wake me up when September ends, but we are not allowed to sleep in September because we are getting ready for PositConf in a couple of weeks. So uh, do, doing well, hanging in there uh, and, and looking forward to, to Chicago. Me as well. And um, yes, I imagine after the workshop, I'm going to have an image in my head. If you've ever watched you know, classic Terminator 2, when uh, Arnold is just about set to put the end to the T-1000, whatever it's called, he says, I need a vacation. Yeah, I think we both could use one. But, you know, after the workshop, it'll be a fun time. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm worried you might need an Uber ride drive back home. Well, well you know, yeah, I may uh, hibernate in the hotel once or twice there. We'll see. But um, in any event, we're very much looking forward to the event. And... Um, but we have our weekly to talk about here. And our issue this week was curated by Colin Fay, another longtime member of the R Weekly team, and of course, one of the architects of one of our favorite art packages called Golem, which may or may not be talked about at the workshop. But of course, he has tremendous help from our fellow R Weekly team members and contributors like you all around the world. And what I always like to see leading off in these highlights is a situation where I find myself in trying to solve an immediate problem and then discovering a handy function that just makes my life all so much easier. So it's our pleasure to welcome back to the highlights, my Elle Salmon. She returns of another great blog post, very similar styles than we've heard in previous months about some R functions that she not only learned about, but enjoyed using this week. I really like that title. First, especially as an R user on Linux, I can have an appreciation for this is trying to find out in a quick way, what is that dependency structure of that package you want to use? What is the footprint of it? Well, a package that has been in existence for about a year now or so called PAC, which I believe has been authored by Gabor Sassardi from the POSIT team. He has a handy function in PAC called Package Depths Explain, where this is a very helpful way for you to see in a very intuitive console output if you want to see the dependencies for packages like why, say, to use this package, depends on another package that you see listed, in this case, HTTR2, that she sees in her example here. It will show you the connections in between the source and that other dependency that you specify. And then we see in the blog post that it ends up being the GH package that is that intermediate step between dependencies. And this has happened so much in the R community, right? We have these packages that stand on the shoulders of giants, if you will. And then those stand on the shoulders of other packages. And sometimes you want to know just kind of in a traceable way, just how big does that chain go? Sometimes it's very quick. Sometimes it might be a good five or six packages deep. You never know. But it's fascinating to see that. 
Next, as someone who has had to deal with gnarly data in the past, especially in the presence of weird characters, that's my description of it, that can wreak havoc as you're trying to do any kind of, say, maybe building factors off of characters or doing any kind of subsetting and figuring out why you can't get values of that particular variable. You might be the victim of ASCII characters in your data somewhere or in that file you're importing to give that data inside. So come, what comes built into R is the tools package, and that has a function called show non-ASCII file where you can quickly see where these ASCII characters are and be able to replace those if you need to with, say, an especial escaping for Unicode characters and the like. But that can be a real cumbersome issue to solve as you're importing data from external sources and you're trying to figure out just where is that weird character coming from. So another handy find there as well. And then in the concept of development, maybe you weren't using something like Git right away and you've got a couple copies of files somewhere. You know you've done this. You've done the save as, name a script, underscore final, or underscore testing. You know you've done it. You know you're out there. No guilt here. We've, I've done it too. You really want to see quickly what is that difference. You don't want to leave the confines of R to do it. You've got a couple different options here that Miles discovered here. One from the aforementioned tools package called RDIF with a capital R. And that is a handy way to quickly see, okay, between two, set, two files, does it differ in the number of lines? And also what is the status of that, if you will? And then what in particular is the difference? So you get a few different slots of the output here. One is the status itself, which I believe is one if there's a difference. And then also this out, which shows the actual lines that are different between the source and the comparison file here. And you can see which lines are actually showing that difference. There is another package that actually is very helpful for Git operations called GERT that also is able to help you actually do commits right away within R itself. And then you can see via what you might be experienced with Git itself, there's a way to do a diff between two files and see between the modified version of the file and say the existing committed version and quickly see the differences there. So GERT gives you a way to kind of experiment with that, in her case of a temp directory, to do that on the fly. So I think these will be very helpful from a development standpoint, especially as getting your feet wet with Git itself. And then also, like I said, maybe you weren't as disciplined in the early days of your R development, and you're just not quite sure in that thousand line R code file you, you scripted up, just where is that one or two set of differences? There are other tools that can help with this too, but if you want to play in the R space, these are some handy functions to work with that. So really great finds as always by Mel, and I think I'm going to be adopting some of those quite routinely in my workflows. Well, I like this series of blog posts from Mel where she's pointing out a couple of different functions each week, you know, two or three or maybe four in this case that she found useful because inevitably they're always functions that I find really useful as well. And most of the time I'm learning about these functions through her, her blog posts. I know the pack uh, package 
for package maintenance, uh, no pun intended there, is 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 really phenomenal for managing uh, your package installations and updating packages um, and handling all things package installation. And I did not know that there is a, a package depths dependencies explain function, which is is just phenomenal um, because you know when we are working in open source, a lot of times we're we're standing on the shoulders of, of other packages that have been built. And when we are trying to release in our package, you know our packages have, have dependencies that then have dependencies underneath them, and it's important because we know inevitably that folks will have installation issues, right? Based upon you know how their their setup is, is configured, whether or not they're using uh, the RN package, things like that, what their environment looks like, uh, that, that they'll inevitably run into some issues with dependencies. Um, and I think this function is a phenomenal way to troubleshoot it. I've ran into plenty of <laughs> dependency issues myself uh, and, and had to go down rabbit holes to, to troubleshoot those issues. So I, I think that this is going to be a really useful function for me to use going forward to do that. So a great find uh, by Mael. I haven't, I guess, ran into a lot of non-ASCII or you call it ASCII characters, uh, ASCII character issues in, in the past. I, I think here or there, right, with strange file types and things like that, if you you just have sort of flat text files that you're ingesting that have uh, weird line breaks and things like that, then, then, then absolutely. But it's nice to know that we have this base function uh, just from, from tools that will show us the, the non-ASCII characters within that file. Just super useful. A nice function that I would have never guessed, I guess, would, would been packaged into sort of the, the base R installation in the tools package. Um, it's just one of those nice little utilities that, that we, we have um, in case we need it. And then finally, you know, this, this uh, uh, other function from, from tools called, called rdiff and it's, it's complement that Mael found uh, from the GERT package called, called git diff patch, I think is really useful too. And, and to me, it can be even useful when you are using git a Git client. Um, and I'll explain a use case that, that we have recently. So we have, we're building a, a large data pipeline uh, in the cloud. We're transitioning it from, from an on-premise source to a, uh, a cloud-based source for one of our clients who have, have many customers. And most of these customers, the, the ETL scripts that we're writing for them are very similar save for a couple different sections from customer to customer that there are you know, small little edge cases that have to be handled. Um, and when you're using, even if you are using Git, you know, when you, you sort of copy these ETL templates from customer to customer, depending on how you, you commit, the changes that you're making from customer to customer may not be like perfectly obvious if you're committing too late, essentially, but you still want to be able to compare the ETL script from one customer to another, even though it's not like perfectly articulated in your Git commit history. Um, and, and just to be able to compare two files to each other and see the differences, um, the, the small differences that exist, I think these these functions are going to be super handy for me to do that because that's a use case <laughs> that again, I'm running into that again, it seems to be uh, getting solved by the R Weekly highlights. So I, I really appreciate these nice digestible blog posts that Mel puts together and uh, I always, always find something of value in, in these posts. Yeah, well said. Uh, it's always a, a little nugget here and there, but um, you asked about those ASCII characters. 
Yeah, at the day job, sometimes we would get these lab data sets um, and some of these instruments would just put the most gnarly characters in either unit columns or other descriptive category columns. And it was just a pain in the rear to figure out, wait, no, I subset it for that unit type. I typed it on my keyboard. Why is it not matching? One of these can trip it up to no end. So... You know when you deal with it, having having a way to find those quickly is is it just makes your life so much better. So lots of things that Mel posts here makes my life so much better. So thank you, Mel, for continuing to share your aha moments. And boy, I I've had a few aha moments myself. I just haven't had time to blog about it. Some of the workshop developments, some things I've been learning on that. But again, some people will hear about that in a couple of weeks. And speaking of aha moments, when I first started using R, there are definitely opportunities where you may not know it, but you are entering a world where you kind of put yourself behind the eight ball, insert your cliche here about some mishaps that can happen just by innocently trying to, for example, make a vector bigger where you don't know how big it's going to be. Well, our next highlight is an exploration on one of these definitely most well-known potential pitfalls you can encounter with R, especially how it deals with object and memory size, and maybe some modern approaches to just how invasive this problem still actually is. And our next highlight comes from Mike Mahoney, who is a PhD candidate at Sunny ESF, about his take on one of the classic pitfalls that we've heard about for many years that has been documented in the often cited R Inferno that was authored by Patrick Burns, which if nothing else is a very entertaining read about some of the pitfalls you can encounter when using R on a day-to-day basis. And there is a section called Growing Objects where maybe you are doing some data or functional programming development and you know you want to basically have a placeholder object to put things in, typically a vector, and then this function is going to do things and then you're just going to keep appending to this empty vector one by one by one. Well, Patrick Burns shows that that is going to cause a lot of havoc with memory and possibly CPU time. So the advice has always been to pre-allocate this vector with a size that you already know is going to be as big as. So if you know up front you're going to do a, a vector of, say, 200 elements, you create this vector, the type of it, and then how big it is, and then start putting things into that one by one or however your function is producing it, and that will help quite a bit. And then even better, if you can do a vectorized version instead of a for loop, that can help as well. Although for loops do get a bad rap, sometimes unfairly, but to the point that can take advantage of vectorized operations because they're actually doing for loops under the hood anyway, but in the maybe a C or Fortran library or whatever. Now, Patrick Burns' advice comes from the Arferno, comes way back in 2011. Yeah, we're, we're about 12 years removed from that, and sometimes things can change. Certainly, the performance of R has changed. Of course, we could also talk about the you know 
now 20,000 plus packages on Coran that can help you beef up performance and help you interface with other libraries like C++ or whatnot. But maybe R itself has made some improvements to kind of at least get a little bit better handle on Azure, in this case, growing objects. You know, can we get away with a little bit more than we used to? So instead of just having hypothetical what ifs, Mike does this awesome exercise here in the blog post of using the bench package, in particular the mark function, to prototype four different ways of growing a vector of unknown size. Starting with the classical, just the vector empty itself, and then using either single or double brackets, apparently that does make a difference. Well, the results do show that, as expected, you can get a lot more mileage out of the bracket growing methodology here, way more than just the typical C of empty vector route. So he does some additional additional explorations with, say, the vapply function. But that's still slower than some of the other allocation methods. Um, but these differences are not to the extent that may have been back in 2011. So there's always like a practical trade-off of just how much performance you need to eke out. Sometimes it definitely matters, especially if you're doing say massive simulations and you need that performance as much as you can get and other times you might be able to get away with a little bit so he's got some visuals at the end of the post kind of showing the as your sample size or the the length of the vector increases kind of the computation time and memory footprint and you can clearly see the differences between these approaches pre-allocation is still the clear winner here i think that's one of the takeaways but apparently there have been some interesting comments from the community in the blog post that is at the end here. Um, we'll have a link to a couple of these responses. I believe uh, June Cho found some commits back in the R core itself to help with some of these issues with pre-allocating a memory footprint um, and some, some safeguards that they put in that space. So definitely check those out if you're interested in the performance gains and how R itself is being enhanced in this space. But in the end, yes, the takeaway is still, in my opinion, pre-allocate when you can, but you may not be in quite a world of hurt like you were before, back in 10 years ago or so, when you didn't do such methods. But again, the approach that Mike takes here, I think is quite intuitive here, is if you have a question about different approaches, benchmark it, see for yourself. It's great, great advice to live by, for sure. So, Mike, are you a pre-allocator, or do you like to wing it with empty stuff? <laughs> I try to unallocate, I guess, most of the time, as opposed to, to pre-allocate. But, uh, you know, this is my consultant answer. It, it all depends on your use case, right? How big the data is that you're working with it sort of determines how much you need to, to fuss with these things or how much you necessarily need to care I thought it was pretty interesting how, you know, unallocation, which is essentially, you know, not predefining how big the vector is going to be, um, just letting it fill up via one bracket versus two brackets is is so different. Uh, and we're talking about square brackets now. So 
it's almost double in terms of memory and <laughs> time uh, between two brackets and one bracket. So one bracket is is half the time uh, to to essentially fill that uh, vector as opposed to two brackets. And the same goes for for memory. There, uh, two brackets uses double the amount of memory that one bracket uses, and that the code is exactly the same except for a second square bracket on either side of that sort of assignment uh, to the to the object, which is really, really interesting. But I think the main takeaway right at the end of the day is that pre-allocation, unallocation, you know, all, all these vectorized approaches via apply are all way, way, way faster than just using the C function to uh, slowly sort of fill that particular vector. So I think, you know, if if you want to be safe and not have to spend too much time futzing with with which one of these approaches you're going to use, uh, just don't use the C function and, and either pre-allocate or unallocate um, using square brackets or, or otherwise or the vapply function. So I, I really appreciate that Mike took the time to benchmark all these different approaches against each other. You know, this is absolutely something that that I've run into before. You know, some of these 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 for loops, you're exactly right, sort of have a code smell to them and, and remind me a lot of uh, my early days of writing our code that I've tried to, to get away from. And, um, you know, we're grateful to have tools like per these days as well, where we can just uh, apply functions across vectors or lists uh, in a much more simplistic syntax than having to write for loops uh, and, and otherwise. So uh, really nice blog post by Mike. I appreciate him pulling in, you know, Jun Cho, Cho's uh, comments from Mastodon at the bottom, which have references like directly to the R source code, which is pretty incredible and, and commits uh, along the lines of that, as well as some comments refer referencing uh, some videos that Josiah Perry has about loops as well, which I think deal uh, again with a lot of these concepts of memory allocation and speed and performance. It's really interesting post if, if you're somebody who's looking to optimize the code that you write specifically when it comes to vectors i think this one's for you well mike you and i are of course in this time of year wherever it's for your consulting business or me through my uh big org, you know, day job duties. We're at this time where we're planning for next year, key projects that are going to be either funded or taken upon by our respective groups. So, well, guess what? This happens in the R community too, because we're on our third highlight here. We have a call to action and it is the applications for new grants from the R consortium for new infrastructure projects is up and running. And for those that aren't aware, we've actually been talking about our consortium for a bit on previous episodes, but this is a golden opportunity to, if you have an idea to help make our better, and in this case, especially from an infrastructure side of things, you can send a proposal to the infrastructure steering committee. And you may be wondering, that seems really ambitious. What has been successful in this space before? One is the R-Hub, which is a very valuable service for you to mimic a lot of CRAN checks on additional servers um, through an API inv invocation through the R-Hub package itself, but also you can quickly determine 
how your package is going to perform in those CRAN checks and have it build on many architectures before you actually submit it to CRAN itself. That has been helpful to so many people. And in fact, even circling back to Shiny, like we always do, one of the nice things about Golem is that they have in one of their development scripts a little placeholder to check your package on our hub if you want. So it's really used quite a bit across many spectrums of our development. And then also, if you've been interacting with databases, I know many of you in the audience have, especially with the voluminous amounts of data we have in our projects these days. The DBI um, initiative, which in essence is a package that helps bring this unified, you know, DSL, if you will, to other specific packages for interfacing R with databases. They had an R consortium grant years ago to help beef up DBI even further with robust testing and other infrastructure improvements. So DBI has been a huge benefit of what the R consortium has offered for these grants. And then there's also not just a technical side, there's also social or community-driven infrastructure improvements as well, such as what has gotten very popular in the last few years, the Saturdays conference system, where you can just have one day, everybody gets together and share their presentations or their knowledge about R. That organization has been has been launched by a grant that was submitted years ago, and that's had great success. Well, I know I can start in South Africa, I believe, years ago with one of them, and then it's taken off in different regions since. So doesn't just have to be technical, it can be social as well. So the blog post has that, that in more detail, as well as the key dates. It looks like the cycle for this, the application deadline is October 1st. So you've got the rest of September to get your proposal out there. Um, so yeah, if you have a great idea, it's a great time to get involved. Yeah, I uh, really appreciate the undertakings from the ARC Consortium. Um, and the ISC to to do these things, right? It, it really, we've talked about it many times before, but it really provides that maybe additional incentive or, or additional help in, in terms of funding for folks who, who want to enrich a small section of, of the R ecosystem that's going to help a lot of other people. Um, so, so it's amazing that we have projects like this. I don't know how much of this sort of exists within Python or, or Julia, or things like that. I guess I'm just not familiar enough with those those communities, but this seems like a pretty special thing um, within the R community. And it's it's funny, you know, they have a, sort of a call to action that says, you know, do you see emerging domains where R could could significantly I- impact them? And you know, is it climate science, engineering, finance, medicine? And I'm like all of the above. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. And, and I guess that's a benefit that I have um, operating a consulting firm is, is that I actually get to see are being used across all of these different disciplines. And it's, it's, it's really phenomenal um, to see just how impactful it can be and how widespread and broad its applicability is. So, you know, I think it goes without saying, you know, that some of the projects that have been funded um, by this particular uh, effort, you know, including DBI and, and SF and things like that are hugely impactful on a giant community of folks, you know, but I, I wouldn't let that scare anyone away from applying for this funding. You know, they are interested in projects that have a low to medium risk and a low to medium reward. Uh, you know, they're not necessarily looking for, for moonshots, high risk, high reward projects. They're looking for things that have a very focused scope 
Um, so yeah, I think there's probably a lot of people out there maintaining our packages or, or have a great idea for an R package that, that may seem a little niche to the domain that you're working in, but I would encourage you to apply because, because you, you never know, um, maybe your project will get picked for funding from, from the R consortium and, and the, the RSC, and maybe it will have a bigger impact than, than you realize. Yeah, in fact, I was even just seeing what recently was funded even as of earlier this year. And lo and behold, friend of the podcast, John Harmon has a project that's been funded called API 2R, an R package for auto-generating R API clients. Now that could be a huge game changer too. So there's that's a, a great thing to look at if you're interested in this and seeing kind of the history of what's been funded and seeing either patterns or inspiration as you get your proposals together so yeah you never know what you find there but you don't have to be the head of a major corporation to get this funded right i mean you can be a community member just like us and you have that idea and you got a great proposal i think there's a good chance of getting that funded here so yeah but also speaking of pursuing there's a lot more to pursue if you will in this week's our weekly issue take a couple of minutes for our additional finds of the issue and for me i always like these um kind of historical look backs if you will and we'll link to the blog post by Chung Hong Chan titled 10 Years of Rio. I'm not talking about the city Rio. I'm talking about the R package Rio, where this has been. I'm not sure this is the best analogy, but like the Swiss army knife of importing data formats, because it can import almost any format you can think of. I had no idea it's been 10 years since Rio has been around. I've seen it used time and time again across different projects and different industries. So um, Chung Hong's post here, that's a great look back to how Rio started, some of the lessons he's learned, and yes, even some, you might say, uh, moments that he wish he could have back, so to speak, but he's been very transparent about it, and it's a fascinating read to how Rio was born. But yeah, the blog post is a great look at the history of Rio and where maybe it will go in the future. But in the end, great, great package that has helped immensely many, many people with their data flows into R. Uh, Mike, what did you find? Oh, that's a great, that's a great find. It's a, it's a really cool read into the history of of a package developer and package maintainer too, uh, if you're interested. The, the highlight that I, I found um, is some updates in the Shiny ecosystem because it's something I'm super excited about. And, and primarily uh, in the BS Lib package, we now have tooltips, popovers, and a new switch uh, input widget, which is absolutely awesome. It seems to me like some of these UI improvements uh, that they are putting into Shiny for Python are being put into BS Lib. I guess instead of the, the uh, maybe I'm not understanding that correctly, Eric. Well, I think what they're positioning BS Lib as, and ironically in a couple of weeks, we'll get to hear from the, from the sources on this, is things that they wish Shiny for R had that are just not at this stage of life quite ready to put in yet. BS Lib, I think, is going to be that, that enhancement on top of Shiny as the foundation and plus with BS Lib, they can move faster with trying these ideas out. So I think now that Shiny for Python has the benefit of learning from the development of Shiny for R after how many, 10, 12 years or so, 
there's lots of things that they know they want to build in right the first time on that side of it. So that's my take on it. Very, very, very interesting. No, and I think you're, you're absolutely correct there, but it's, it's, it's really cool. You know, I, you use shiny widgets a lot and not to, not to have any preference over one package or another, but to me, it feels like some of these improvements that are coming to BSLib are things that have existed in the shiny widgets ecosystem for a while, but they just look a little bit cleaner uh, with these more recent implementations within BSLib. So I'm excited to, to get started in integrating, you know, especially uh, tooltips and popovers are, are super useful for just providing that uh, additional context around the visuals that folks are seeing, the context around the, the, the data uh, that they're seeing on screen and, and how to interact with your, your Shiny app. So I'm, I'm really excited about those UI improvements. And one other one to, uh, to the Shiny package itself, it now renders dynamic UI asynchronously um, and will also load script tags in an asynchronous manner. So I do have quite a few apps that, that uh, render a dynamic UI sort of from the get-go. Um, that are dynamic to, you know, an underlying file, YAML file or, or data set or things like that. Uh, so I know that those take some time to boot up. So I'm very excited to see if uh, these improvements really speed up uh, the time it takes for those apps to, to get started. And there's a few other updates within the ecosystem, uh, within the future promise uh, function of the promises package for speed improvements there, and some additional objects that are now supported uh, by, by Leaflet, some additional geospatial type objects that are now supported by Leaflet. So very exciting time to be a Shiny developer always, uh, or just an open source developer in general, right? We, we're always seeing new improvements uh, come through, and this is definitely a, a suite of exciting improvements uh, in the Shiny ecosystem. Yeah, I've been so excited to see where BSWeb is going. And once I knew they were building in the uh, the more friendly kind of upfront functions to get a nice clean dashboard appearance on, I made the call in my virtual desk here. And I said, that's it. My next workshop, we're training whatever it is. We're building an app with BSWeb's dashboard functions. And hence, the workshop is using that too. So we are very much consumers of this. And I'm excited to hopefully, from this point forward, if I want to stick with Shiny proper, I don't feel like I'm compromising on UX anymore. That always felt like a trade-off that, you know, again, it this is the nature of it being in, in such long development. You just learn over time how people use packages like this. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. To, in fact, I'm revamping an older app as we speak at the day job where we're getting a clean look and how we want to do the UX, a clean look how we did the back end. And I said to myself, yeah, this, the traditional, you know, sidebar and this stuff. Uh, no, we're going to be a swip all the way now. So I'm really excited. And um, for those of you that use the package like Shiny BS to do those tooltips and popovers before, guess what? You don't have to anymore. BS Web's got you covered. So I know there's code out there in the wild. Some of you out there have used Shiny BS a lot for that functionality. Again, fair play to Shiny BS for over the years, but that's not being maintained anymore. So, yeah, might want to move to BS Web sooner or later. And it just looks cleaner in BS Lib from what I, everything I've seen thus far. So, super excited. No complaints for me on the on the looking of it either. So yeah, and themeable too. Look at this. We're gushing all over the place on this. We could go for hours about this. But you know what? We're going to leave you with is how you can get involved with the project. So 
our weekly itself. We are proud to welcome our newest curator to the team, Emily A. Robinson. She has just joined us as a couple days ago, so we'll see an issue from her hopefully very soon. But yeah, and if you want to join alongside her um, to be a curator for the project, you just go to rweekly.org. You got a link to our GitHub page where we have complete details on how you can get in touch with us and see if you'd like to get involved with the curation. And also, if you see that great new blog post, maybe a retrospective, maybe a great use of R in another industry, we want to hear about it on R Weekly itself. We are just a pull request away. The upcoming issue draft is directly linked at the top corner of the page. So you can send a pull request in your fancy markdown syntax. It's actually not that fancy. Markdown, you can write. If, as Ehway CS told me, if you can't learn Markdown in five minutes, he would give you $5. Well, I never got paid by him because I learned Markdown in less than five minutes. Anyway, it's very easy to pick up. So head over to the GitHub repo and you can send a pull request that way. And we want to hear from you as well. In fact, I want to send a shout out to those that gave us some interesting comments on my uh, cross-posting in the last episode on LinkedIn. Got some nice comments there about... Maybe some hesitation around the S7 class and some other comments there. But yeah, keep it coming. We love to hear from you. And uh, get in touch with us on social media as well. I am mostly on Mastodon these days with at our podcast at podcastindex.social. And yes, sometimes I'm on the other one too. I'm at the RCast on, you know, whatever you want to call it. So yeah, feel free to get in touch with me there. Mike, uh, where can the listeners get a hold of you? Likewise, uh, Mastodon's the best place at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Awesome stuff. Well, we've had, we almost probably recorded two episodes of our pre-show, folks. Maybe someday that'll get released in bonus material, but not yet. <laughs> we got lots of fun stuff planned for you as always. But until then, we will have another edition of our weekly highlights next week. And maybe some modern approaches to just how invasive this problem still actually is. So our next highlight is coming from Mike Mahoney, who is a PhD candidate. Of course, I forgot where he actually was a PhD candidate. (sighs) (laughs) Try again. But if you see a need for R to tap into newer technology or newer ways of thinking and also sharing and also sharing ways we share our now too many shares <laughs> you better make sure you take those vitamins before positive conf i, I know need you. i know i need you there <laughs> yeah i will i will be there somehow I'll hook her by crook yeah um okay i'm growing yeah, yeah, you and me both. Um, 